Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our live broadcast. Hopefully, I think I've got everything working again. So tonight we're looking at Guttur Nikaya Book of Fives, Sutta 200, Nisarniya Sutta. Nisarniya. Nisarniya dhatu yo dhatu dhatu is elements or it just they're just a type of thing. Nisarniya that should be that one should be released in regards to. So there are five bases of clinging is what the Buddha is talking about here. And we should release We should uh, go away from, come out of, not hold on to these things, basically. And that's really the point in Buddhism, is not so much to change or to fix our problems, but to learn to let go you know, we talk so much about letting go it's sort of a, become a spiritual buzzword letting go is the easy advice to give to someone no? just let go man you gotta learn to let go I think it's really, it is the point it, it seems trite, it seems, it's an easy thing to say And I guess that's the point, is it's much easier to Tell yourself or tell other people that uh, You just gotta let go It's much more difficult to actually accomplish Because letting go isn't a practice Clinging is a habit, it's something that we cultivate And habits don't just turn off because you no longer have use for them Habits change by changing your habits Which is, I suppose should be quite obvious But Habits build over time, they can change over time, they do change over time Change, change is, is the essential quality of the universe We are not who we are right now Who we are right now is not the totality or is not the end of who we are It's just a snapshot in time And so we can change, we can cling more and Harder and stronger to things we can build up those habits Or we can learn to let go To stop stressing and fussing And controlling and clinging And chasing So much, so much that we cling to That it really does just come down to that simple Mantra almost of just let go 
So, I mean, to be clear, this isn't an easy thing to do. It's not even the practice. <coughs> Our practice is about, in Buddhism, the, the theory is that it's seeing clearly that allows you to let go. Seeing clearly is a habit you have to cultivate day and night. You have to work at it. Ideally, you make your way to a meditation center or monastery off in the forest and you spend time alone in your room on the mat, off the mat and you let it seep into everything you do you, when you eat, you eat mindfully when you walk, you walk mindfully when you urinate and defecate you do so with full comprehension becomes a meditation everything you do and as you do this while well, your habits change well, you're, you, you start to see things more clearly and so your habits change for the better and you realize what um, uh, the claim is that you will realize what the Buddha taught that nothing's worth clinging to it's just not worth inherently worth clinging to there's no question about it and that the reason we cling is simply because we weren't looking carefully enough it's not that we didn't believe the Buddha or we have to you don't have to believe that it's wrong to cling to these things you don't have to believe anything what you have to do is use this very well crafted method of learning to see things however they may truly be this method of objective observation cultivating objectivity and, and clarity of mind and you'll see that nothing's worth clinging to this is the claim and it's really a wonderful boast to make it's a bold statement this is a lion's roar of sorts putting it right out there you don't have to believe me right there's no there, there's no room for treachery either we're right or we're wrong and you you can find out for yourself fairly quickly it's not that buddha's the buddha's teaching doesn't work it's not that it's not perfect it's a well we don't do it it's hard to find people willing to cultivate such objectivity anyway so let's look at what it is the sorts of things that we're looking to free ourselves from because it's nice always to have these frameworks it aligns it helps us to align our practice in the right ways so here we have again the five things that we're looking to free ourselves from basically I mean I'm kind of paraphrasing here so the Buddha says, Ida bhikkhuve bhikkhuno kamang manasikroto kame sujitang napakandati napasiddati nasanti tati navimuchati. What does that mean? In regards to kama, kama meaning sensuality. Kama is a word that we use to refer to the desire for sensual pleasures 
uh, or the whole process of sensual desire, sensual pleasure. Sensual desire leads to sensual indulgence or, or seeking out sensuality, which leads to sensual pleasure, which in turn leads to sensual desire, this cycle of kilesa kamma vibhaka. It's a cycle. Builds up, builds up addiction. So here the Buddha says, a bhikkhu, uh, <coughs> when keeping in mind kamma, kamma, sensuality, they're able to see through it. Napakandati. They don't they don't yearn for it. They don't jump at the opportunity, seeing sensual pleasure. They don't leap. The mind doesn't leap out. Jitang napakandati. Napasidati. They don't become overjoyed. Nasantitati. They don't become content. Navimuchati. They don't become released, I don't know what the meaning there is, but I guess um, they don't let their mind wander or let their mind go free into, right? Because one way of dealing with sensuality is just to enjoy it, free, go free, live your life, be young, have fun. Nekamango Panasa manasikroto nekame jitang pakandati. So, in regards to renunciation, their mind leaps at the idea, is enjoyed, devoted to the idea, content with the idea, and wanders freely in the idea, is let loose in the concept of renunciation. So, it just totally engrossed in the idea of renunciation. So the Buddha is phrasing it here in terms of a, um, a behavior of, of I mean, an ideal behavior, an ideal mindset that comes from meditation. As you meditate, you start to become disinclined towards sensuality because you say, oh, it's such a torturous thing like a dog with a bone smeared with blood that can never be satisfied chewing and chewing but still always hungry and so the mind starts to naturally become disinclined towards sensual pleasure and so sensual desire is reduced and one doesn't leap, isn't inclined towards it in the way that one may have been before and instead one is inclined towards renunciation and finds that more appealing because in renunciation is peace, is uh, happiness, is freedom. Freedom to be without being tortured or without being pushed and pulled by, um, by desires. So that's the first one. In regards to desire, one gives it up. What does it say? Because of that... Mm, They become free 
ये च काम पचाया उपजंती आसवा विगाता परिलाहा whatever uh, illness no whatever fever and torture uh, might arise from the defilements in regards to sensuality one is free from them muto is a good phrase muto so dehi from them he or she is freed. Muto means freed. Nasotang vedanang veda iti. Does not feel that kind of feeling. What does that mean? Hmm. Right. Does not suffer this sort of fever. The fever that comes from sensuality. Oh, when we want something, we're like, we're like a crazy person, feverish with want, like a drug addict going through withdrawal. Idam idam akatang gama nang nisarnang. This is said to be this is declared to be the escape from sensual pleasures. And he does the same thing with all five of these. So this is the idea is that as we practice we give these things up and as a result we don't suffer the insanity that comes the fever that comes from the suffering that comes from getting the craziness of it the second one is the opposite vyapada which is aversion dislike ill will when you are angry angry at others or disliking of experiences could perhaps be put under here this is the opposite. We have these two sides of the coin, the two bad aspects of existence, greed and anger, basically. And anger is the same. Anger is a fever. And so an ordinary person delights or leaps, not necessarily delights, but leaps at the opportunity to get angry. When something angering comes up, one is quick to anger and is inclined and... and satisfied with their anger content to become angry again and again thinking it useful beneficial, helpful you don't meet so many angry people anymore I think at university people are fairly mellow and then living in a monastery and dealing with all of you people it's rare that I meet an angry person in Thailand, there were a lot of angry people because I was, I think, because I was living in the with ordinary people, you know, living in the villages and in the forests. And a monk chased me through the forest once. Another monk threatened me with a broomstick. Got hit me over the head. Not that I maybe didn't deserve it, but uh, anger is such a terrible thing, no? It's out there in the world. It's what causes war. What I was going to talk about tonight, but I realized I've actually passed it. It was an earlier suit. I didn't realize I was this we were this far through. I was going to talk about uh, the 
future dangers and, uh, and the, the potential for suffering you know, we, we should, that we should work now because we don't know what's coming. Just because we don't experience suffering doesn't mean it's not out there waiting for us. There's a lot of anger in the world and the potential for us to be confronted by it or for us to suffer so greatly that we become angered and upset and averse to our condition. It's, it's, it's very real potential. I mean, many of us are suffering from these mind states consumed by them. So our, 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 the direction we're heading is to free ourselves from anger as well not be inclined towards it, to see it so clearly that you understand the problem, the, the disadvantage with getting angry. Number three, Vihesa. Vihesa, it's interesting that we add this in here. Vexation, annoyance, injury, worry. Worry, maybe? <coughs> maybe worry is a good one. I don't know, because we want to differentiate this from Vyabhada. The commentary doesn't give us any good. Oh, here we are. We've got an, uh, new oh, I see. Right. Okay, so. Um, Let's see then, Vyapada is in regards to hatred, wishing, um, it's the kind of thing that makes you wish someone It's hard to see the difference. See, because Metta is what fights against Vyapada. So, so in that case, we have hatred and then we have cruelty, is what I guess I'd want to say. Wishing someone to not be happy. I guess that's how we'd have to define it here. Wanting to erase people's happiness is, is vyapada. And vihesa is cruelty, so, or it would be the opposite of karuna, so the commentary says anyway, which would mean uh, actually wanting to hurt other people, which is interesting, I'm not really clear on that. Anyway, there are two aspects of, of anger, there is wishing for, there is the, the, the factor of anger that takes away happiness and there's the factor of anger that cultivates suffering I guess that's how I'd see these in ultimate in ultimate sense because ultimately they're one and the same anger is anger, there's not two types of anger I'd like to hear the scholars explain this one to me but uh, it's an interesting distinction between metta and karuna metta is love, karuna is compassion but what do they really mean in reality because you can throw words around, but what do they really mean? Uh, metta, it seems, <coughs> if you want to differentiate them, metta is the desire for other people to be happy. 
and karuna is the desire for others to be or the intention or the inclination not desire exactly but inclination or the thought um, towards alleviating suffering of others so you see it's two sides of pretty much the same coin or two two aspects of the same sort of intention and so these two are the opposite one is the reduction or the the extinguishing of happiness and the other is the creation of suffering so we, we apply that to beings I'm trying to be general because we can wish it on others may they be may they lose their happiness we, we, we sometimes act when we see other people happy we, we are unable to bear with it and so we wish for them to be unhappy or we act in ways it's an awful thing right and then and then we also sometimes act <coughs> we have a thought may they hurt may they suffer so it is two different thoughts, I suppose. But if we want to be more general, we can think of this in terms of anger towards anything. Um, when something arises, and when, when something comes that we're not happy about, we get angry, and the anger removes our contentment. It makes us, it takes away our peace of mind, and it also makes us, it brings us pain. It does, it does both together. I don't know. I think we're going to lump these two together. But in regards to people, it's clear. Sometimes we wish them ill. Sometimes we wish them to lose the, the good that they have. Anyway, we'll understand those as being the anger side of things. The fourth one is a little bit different, which is makes this list quite curious. Is The, the fourth one is rupa. So in regards to form, which um, I'm just going to go out on a limb and, and talk about this in terms of being our ambitions, things, rupa is form, so it's, it's uh, objects. I don't pretend to know what the Buddha meant here, if this is um, where this comes from, but um, there's more because obviously sensual desire and ill will and all that are very much based in in uh, mundane objects of desire and aversion things we like and dislike but we go beyond that in terms of our ambitions our goals our um, the, the, the ideals not ideas in this case but the states that we strive for, like getting a new car. You know, the car isn't exactly a sensual, it's not the sensuality, although it's, it looks nice perhaps, but just the, the having a car, possessions, having a big house, uh, getting um, a big office, I know money, money is a big one. This is under Rupa. Lots and lots of money. It's not sensuality. If you look look at your bank account and you see, oh, I have a million dollars in my bank account. It's not the number that is is attractive. It's the 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 having. You know, I mean, nowadays numbers aren't uh, money isn't very real. But if you have a a handful of 
$100 bills, that is something. That's rupa. So any kind of rupa. Our body, we work out to build up our body, we get attached to that. The strength, just this state that we want. Or maybe we're, we're overweight, we think, and we want to reduce our weight. So we're still attached to rupa, to form. This is one side of, of uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, this is uh, one aspect of the things that we cling to. But as, of course, as we meditate, we give up things and form entirely. We give up the material world. We aren't so concerned with what we have and who we are and what comes, what goes. We're not worried about our possessions as we were before. <coughs> not even so worried about our body as we were before. So it's number four. And number five is Sakaya. So one way of interpreting this might be in regards to the mind. Sakaya means basically the self. the soul sakaya so we might think of this in terms of the mind one gets attached to the mind or one gets attached to kaya is a body so sakaya may refer to entities uh, and this this I, I mean I'm trying to stretch this to, to think about the mind right because not only are we attached to form but we're also attached to mental concepts attached to the idea of, of being famous or being smart being charming we're attached to our nationality sometimes we're attached to being Buddhist or Christian we're attached to views so this is something that I think has to sort of be under this fifth concept all of our mental activity, our ideas and beliefs. It's amazing, especially being a r religious sort of person, you, the, the sort of issues that you have to deal with. And I've been debating with one of my classmates. Um, she's also a senior. I talk about her sometimes on here. She's a, an elder person like me. She's, she's older than me. So we, we sometimes sit around and we'll, we'll discuss religion and we interesting to hear her talk and, and me trying to present my take on it all. The belief in God, that's a big one, Sakaya, right? that's got to be in the realm of this fifth one. And these ideas of God, God is this, God is that. So she says, God is love, and I say, well, no, honestly, love is love, right? Or uh, the idea that uh, something works. We talk, she was talking about whether well, this <coughs> this works for me. And I said, well, you know, not it, it may very well lead you to a good place, but we we hear this a lot, right? People people 
put cobble something together that works. But it's a funny thing because what, what we mean by works is that so far I haven't met with catastrophe, which really doesn't say anything at all. It's one of the great things about organized religion. And organized religion is terrible in so many ways, but one of the great things is that it's kind of tried and tested. Like anything else that's institutional, it's uh, like medicine. It's that it's, 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 you know, people have gone through the trial and error process. So organized religion, for all of its many faults, is useful in that way. You go to a church and, and it kind of works. Why? Because they've been doing it for hundreds and thousands of years and so what it does do it does quite well and uh, and and but I'm bringing that up in 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 order to segue into Buddhism I mean if you want to say well let's just do it anyway well you, you don't really have to and and it's not to say that that way is as good as as what we would say well perhaps the Buddha's way what we have here in, in Buddhism is not just a way, we have what we claim to be the perfect way and of course everyone does claim something similar of course what we have in Buddhism is a, a claim this bold lion's roar that if you come and spend some time in a room just a few short weeks you will gain profound realization and unshakable confidence in the truth of of these statements that nothing's worth clinging to and you won't become an arhant most likely but you might very well make it through some very profound stages of insight by the end of it so anyway, that's, uh, that's the Dhamma for tonight, these five things. It's an interesting list, one of those things that are worth highlighting, I think. And now, dare we go into questions? I wonder how many questions are waiting for us. These are my two meditators, if you see here. They don't know maybe that they've got a camera pointed at them. Marshall, he's from, I don't know, where are you from? Oh, right. And Samantha, she's British. Samantha's one of our volunteers. She's a known entity. Robin knows Samantha. She made it. Okay, you guys can go back to your caves. Samantha, Samantha said... And Marshall. Samantha said something that I think is worth, uh, uh, bears repeating. She said... This place is nicer than it looks in the photos. <laughs> the, fo the photos, I think, made it look a little bit creepy or unpleasant, like a dungeon. But she said it's actually quite nice when you come here. So there you go. Anyone who was thinking, oh, it doesn't look like a nice place to be, well, you have, uh, there you have it. It's a nice house. <coughs> so we got a lot of questions. I think so, Bante, but I'm sorry, my screen is frozen for just a moment. Hmm. This seems to happen. 
try to go through them quickly so apologies if we don't give deep answers here you can always feel free to tomorrow say hey you answered my question but I didn't like the answer explain in more detail please are you there? Are okay, you? I can finally see the questions. Monday. Okay. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. I'm looking for ways to meditate, but I always fail. I can't seem to get a steady practice. Not even sure ways that I can create samoyga. Some ascetic practices, maybe? Yeah. Sure. It's good to have a, an ascetic framework. It helps you sleeping on the floor, eating in the morning, um, keeping the eight precepts, going to a meditation center, having a meditation group, you know, coming here helps you, finding a teacher, doing a meditation course. One of the big things we've done is hold uh, online meditation courses. So you can sign up for a slot and meet with me once a week, and then you got to do an hour a day, because if you don't, I'm not going to give you the next exercise and I will I will you will be ashamed you will come to me and you have to apologize and so just that psychological uh, threat is uh, seems to be good for helping people push people to meditate you know when people train the body they get a trainer so having a teacher is very very important I mean very very useful anyway if not necessary it's very very useful Dear Bob, listening to you, I'm getting often written that you have a disregard for the physical bodily health. From what I understand, the reason for that attitude is the impermanence of the body. Just because the body is impermanent doesn't mean you should not take care to maintain good health and self just because one will get dirty at some point anyway. Does physical body play any significant role in the path of attaining nirvana? I mean, it's not really, there's no really real hard and fast answer to this one. Yay. You kind of do take care of your body, but it's kind of like a matter of course. It's like you take care of your car because it gets you places. So one answer is just that, you know, you, yeah, you need your body and you have to use it, so you do take care of it. But a big problem with that is we obsess over the body. And so sometimes the best way to become enlightened, and this is probably, you could say, for some people or some of the time or part of the practice is about um, or or uh, involves the, the benefit of being sick because when you get sick it, it shows you and it challenges you I suppose that's not very well documented th th that theory that I propose but there are places where sickness is the Buddha says sickness is seen to be um, you know, a, a cause for cultivating enlightenment and there are examples of monks who get sick and then as a result they become enlightened it, it, it cultivates a sense of urgency and uh, you know, forces you to either be mindful or go crazy because sickness is very very stressful um, so there's two aspects I mean, obsession over health is, is, a, is an attachment and it distracts you and it makes you non-objective 
and also it um, get, uh, getting sick can can be in and of itself eye-opening. You know, even people who almost die will have their lives change profoundly because they realize most of life isn't really all that important. And the Buddha said, when sometimes when you're getting sick, when you get sick, and even when you're dying, that's when people finally decide to practice meditation. Unfortunately, they wait that long. But so I'm not. I, I, I don't ever say, you know, don't look after your body. There's, I've got one talk about physical exercise that I think has got a bajillion downvotes on it because everyone is, hey, physical exercise is good for you, blah, blah, blah. I'm not impressed by that one, but by that theory. But, uh, you know, so like things like physical exercise, I think the big problem is people eat too much. So if you just ate less, you probably wouldn't need nearly as much. But you know, on the other hand, fine if you want to say physical exercise maybe it helps prolong your life and so on and so on I don't have any hard and fast views on this one I just um, be aware of the issues surrounding it which are that um, you know, health can lead to negligence in the sense of, of complacency and it's also a kind of an attachment of the oh there you go oh you know what I forgot to do I forgot to start the yeah Oh, that's a shame. I forgot to click oh. the play button. So these, anyway, that's just a technical thing. On the meditation side, I'm I clicked the play on the first two hmm. questions. Oh, <laughs> something. No, I'm supposed I'll to, when the broadcast starts, I'm supposed to hit a button that says the broadcast has started. So the oh. question, the question and answers line up and they get a timestamp, which they won't. Can you do it now? It'll, if I do it now, it'll be like off. They'll, they'll all be off, so it's useless. Oh, okay. Much attached to tasty food. There are some cookies my parents buy that I like. That I like. What I'm doing is I'm eating the cookies very slowly while I know everything to the point that one tiny cookie will take three to four minutes to be eaten. I just want to know if this is a good practice. And sometimes you say... We shouldn't strive for the states of too much concentration. Well, if you're being mindful, that's a good state, and you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to focus on concentration. You want to focus on mindfulness. So, if you're being mindful and noting everything, but I mean, a point there would be: Are you noting everything, or are you just noting the the eating of the cookie? Are you absorbed in that? Right? Are you ignoring everything else? Maybe the sounds in the room, or maybe the pain in your back or whatever, itching or that kind of thing, or you're noting everything. That that's kind of important. Cause, but you know, it's not that big of a deal. If you when you're eating the cookies and you note everything, you're doing fine. Good, good for you. Cookie meditation. The problem would be and if you were meditating and cultivating Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Bhante. I forget what I was going to say. Okay. Can meditating and cultivating mindfulness possibly help with genetic aphasia and dyslexia? Hmm. I mean, <coughs> probably, probably it wouldn't cure them, um, but it would help you deal with them for sure. Absolutely. Like, I think I my claim is that I think it would even help very much people deal with schizophrenia 
that's just a claim I don't know if it's true but it seems quite reasonable um, and I, I think that people would be surprised at how useful mindfulness meditation is for schizophrenics I don't know I've never, I don't have any 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 experience with dealing with schizophrenics but simple things like aphasia or dyslexia are, are you know, things that you could learn to um, be more objective about, less bothered by, less frustrated by, right? And and also, mindfulness would allow you to the the clarity of mind to process the experiences in a better way. Um, so you'd 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 find them less of a, a, a obstacle because you're mindful. But if you think it would stop you from being dyslexic or curiophasia, probably not. Not in this life. Evening, Bhante. Would you say that because people think they are content with their lives, they would never be drawn to meditation and therefore never be enlightened? From my personal view, it seems that most people are like that. They have found their food for the soul, while I haven't, while I haven't which is why I finally started meditating. So would you say that because of this, most people are doomed to be a layperson and Buddhism will forever be the legacy of the few? Um, yeah, probably. It's not likely that most people are ever going to take up the practice to free themselves, to, you know, to be objective because they're too caught up in sensuality. Hmm. For the most part. Views as well. You know, A lot of people are in the wrong religion. <laughs> So because they're Christian or Muslim, they have a hard time, or they have no interest in meditation. They would never even consider the... There are even Christians who talk about it, and I think Muslims as well, talk about it as though it's evil. It comes from the devil, it's a Satan, a ridiculous thing. Can you believe, no? People saying meditation is, is a product of the devil. Yeah, there are some cases in the U.S. where they had wanted to introduce and, and some parent groups were very much against it because they thought it was anti-Christian. Mm. Well, kind of is anti-Christian, so. but that's anti-Christian from, well, no, I don't want to go there. Yeah, but not at the level that, it, that young children right. would be instructed to do it. Um, no, that's took, true. You know, took it. No, it's far, a, they would come to those I mean, it's only it's only anti-christian in the term in the sense that it cuts through the views it's not that we hold any views that are well i don't know maybe that's not even true but it's not so much that we hold views that christianity is bad and one should do things that are anti-christian but it's more that like any other view that they, they start to fade away and you realize that they weren't exactly proper uh, explanations of the universe. So yeah, it's, it's it's kind of insidious in that way, seditious maybe is the word. Um, in that we we make you think that it's just simple. It's just uh, you know oh it's very compatible. You know you don't have to stop being Christian just because you practice meditation. But uh, but you might eventually. <laughs> but it's not because we made you. Our nefarious master plan is <laughs> to undermine all other religions by tr with the truth, with with simple, 
unbiased, undogmatic truth. It's a very simple truth. It's a very simple thing. It's not something you have to believe. Anyway. Next. That answer was kind of going at it was quick, but that's okay. Can lay Buddhists be commonly? Yes. <coughs> Sometimes I meditate on videos of death, torture, mutilation, and other normally disturbing things to contemplate my reactions. Is there any benefit to this practice, or should I stop doing it? Thank you for your time and much meta. It's fine. I mean, it's a little bit artificial, so it's it's like low-hanging fruit, right? It's much more difficult to have to be mindful of ordinary things because they're kind of dull and boring and, and uninspiring. I don't like any kind of artificial. In the end, I mean, ultimately, you want to make your practice as normal and unremarkable as possible because then you, it takes you deeper to the really subtle ones. I desire to overcome tanha and be content with whatever reality is, no matter how apparently unstimulating or mundane. Thus, would you recommend I take the aesthetic path free from sensory stimulation to gain independence from boredom and craving? Through relinquishment of stimulation, would I eventually lose tanha? It makes it easier. I mean, it's hard to give up tanha when you're engaging in your addiction, when you're surrounded by the objects of your desire. I mean, again, it's not the most important. The most important thing is to be mindful. But there are benefits to going off into the forest. I think people often overestimate those benefits and then realize that they've brought all their defilements with them into the forest. There's another sutta that we pass where it says different reasons why people go into the forest. One is because they're crazy. <laughs> One is because they're antisocial. I don't know. There are five, four of them are, are pretty funny. I met some people that may have Were there all any those good reasons going to? Well, yeah, the fifth <laughs> one is, I think the fourth one is okay. The, the fourth one is like because Buddhas say it's good. And the fifth one is um, they do it for fewness of wishes because they wish to uh, free themselves from craving because they, they desire to be live a simple life. Do you think that the majority came hermits? I didn't catch all that, Robin. Somehow you're skipping. Your, oh, your, sorry. Your internet. Do you think the majority? Okay. Do you think the majority of arahants didn't teach and rather became hermits? I don't know. Again, that's speculative. I'm not going to bother with that one. Sorry. Oh, here's someone's <laughs> cheating and putting the... Is this what they're doing? They're putting a long question into something else. What have we got here?
What's going on? I've been taken to another I think website. I'll summarize it. Um, Have you read this? I take a quick look at it. It's not even coming up for me. Maybe my internet is not good. Maybe my computer's downloading something. Yeah, it's, it's coming up over here. There's a lot of skip to the, the main question. My main question is, if you have personally known or met any 21st century monks or nuns who, instead of relying solely on reading or referring or deciphering Buddhist text, have unanimously seen, verified these claims themselves. Yeah, In no, other I'm words, gonna, rebirth. I'm not going to answer those types of questions. Sorry. Okay. And it's, I don't, you know, this whole long question thing, I mean, I'm not confident in that uh, that uh, sort of uh, direction. The Buddha has spoken that the antidote of aversion is metta. And so if one is experiencing aversion to their meditation, would the metta cultivated from the practice, may I be happy, may I be well, may I be safe, may I be people with the aforementioned aversion? That's not metta. You don't send metta to yourself. That's actually, the Visuddhimagga is quite clear on, on you don't send metta to yourself. You do it as an example. You wish for, you think, well, I want to be happy, and that's your example. And, and just like I want to be happy, may those people be happy. It's pretty pretty standard not to focus on yourself beyond just an original making. A, I think we do too much in the West of this self love. You know, we gotta love yourself. Eh, maybe. And we we do we are hard on ourselves, but it's kind of a different issue kind of a different issue. That one is the, the um, conceit, which is, is a bit different. Useful, but with metta it's about may they be happy, may other people be happy. So you sit and you start with may I be happy, but then you can start to expand it to everyone else. and You're trying to, the same attitude of wishing for yourself to be happy, you're trying to apply it to others. That's metta. It's the applying it to others part. But yeah, I mean, in general, metta is the antidote, so it's it's good. It's um, it's not an antidote per se because it's temporary. As long as the underlying inclinations are still not uprooted, metta is never going to be enough. But it's a certainly a good support. Vante did bahia only practice dhammanupassana to attain arahantship. <laughs> According to the Bahiya Sutta, it would seem that the Buddha only explained about noting seeing as seeing, hearing as hearing, etc. during that short sermon in the street. I think you're probably overthinking it. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's because one way of looking at reality, everything is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. He also said feeling, and how, how do you know the body? Gaya Nupasana is, is through feeling. Let feeling just be feeling. Well, that's also kaya nupasana. And could in vinyate vinyata matang bhavisati, it could include vedana and citta nupasana. So yeah, I wouldn't overthink that.
It's a very Sri Lankan question. Sorry, I don't mean to be. I, I don't really mean to be, but I guess you could say it's a very Buddhist question. I mean, I, why I say Sri Lanka is because Sri Lanka is is like Burma, I think, uh, full of people who know a lot and uh, about Buddhism and have have lived Buddhism throughout their lives. So it's these naughty technical questions. Sanka is so good at. It's not a bad question. It's just I wouldn't overthink it like that. I doubt it. I mean, I doubt you could that you could Most accurately of us are say that. Many of us are glad if we know what Dhammanupassana is. Is it common to shed tears during meditation when at retreat and doing guided meditation by monks? I'm not sure why when I meditate on my own, I never tear, but in retreats out of nowhere, I would tear up silently for quite some time for no reason and without any reason for feeling sad. The tears would roll, although I didn't, although I want to stop because I feel that it's strange and I'm afraid what others might think. Is the body purging resulting from meditation? Well, first of all, don't ever ask. I mean, it's common, everyone asks, but I, I want to encourage people not to ask whether something is common. It doesn't matter whether it's common. That's not a useful question. So it's not it's not good to be worried or afraid, you know, is this something is this a sign of a problem? That's the problem. When you start thinking something is a sign of a problem. So when you feel it is strange, that's all all that's all the real problem. There's gonna be so many different types of experience that come that saying whether something is common or not doesn't really tell you anything useful. Just because suppose you're the only person in the history of meditation to ever have experienced that. Um, that doesn't it doesn't make it any more dangerous, any any more or less harmful. Experiences are experiences, and that's the whole Bahya Sutta thing. You know, Let it just be what it is. So when you experience it, it's just that's all it is. It's like for crying, it's just crying. Now, specifically for crying, it actually happens to be fairly common and surprising because. You wouldn't think that you'd go meditate and suddenly tears would fall for no reason, but it's called, it's a part of piti or rapture. Rapture is maybe not the best word, but you become enraptured, you become caught up um, in some specific mind state, and there's physical states involved as well, and it gives rise to tears. Sometimes it's because of subtle uh, emotions that you're not really detecting, but they get in a cycle and it, it triggers uh, tear stimulus. And then because crying is actually quite pleasurable and releases chemicals that are pleasurable, as I understand, endorphins or whatever, um, it becomes addictive and you can cry for hours and so on. You have to be careful, that not careful, but it, it's, it's possible to get caught up in that in that sense and so that crying becomes the automatic response because it's quite pleasurable. We find these, uh, unconsciously, we find these little tricks, ways to um, to relieve the stress of having to deal with ordinary experience. So rather than deal with our situation, we cry, for example. So when you cry, you should say to yourself, crying, crying. If you feel happy or sad or whatever, you should note that as well. If you like the crying or dislike it, you should note that as well. That's all. And you're you're afraid, wanting it to stop. You should note all that because that's definitely problematic. Afraid of what other people may think. Here's a good motto 
you should never ever worry about what ad, yeah, maybe that's not fair. you should generally not worry about what other people think I mean it's 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 such a simple trite thing to say but uh, it's, it, it doesn't matter what other people think it's something we should remind ourselves of about daily it really doesn't matter what other people think and I put a qualifier on that because sometimes it's good to listen to what other people think um, but only because it helps you it doesn't matter if people hate you sometimes nice when people hate you because it gives you a sense oh maybe I'm doing something wrong well that's good to know but to be upset because someone you know really it doesn't matter it, it, it really really doesn't matter if the whole world is out to get you <coughs> well that might matter that might be somewhat dangerous and, and it's not I mean it, it may sound the point is not you wouldn't want to go so far as to upset people and get yourself in trouble but um, it's never worth getting upset over what people think it's never worth feeling sad or upset or worrying about what other people might think You can be, uh, you can be conscious of other people. Like if you're sitting, some people are go the opposite way. So they'll be sitting in a meditation hall and they'll make loud noise and uh, disregard other people. They have no sense of of uh, conscientiousness, and that's a problem. You have to be empathic and and conscious of other people's rights and so on but you know, we, we're so far uh, many that's quite well, quite often I mean maybe not all of us but many of us are very much concerned what will other people think and it's a fear and a worry and it's just crippling and debilitating when it really doesn't matter <coughs> all right next is it possible that vipassana could worsen my suffering due to an attachment, clinging, or is it rather just that it has induced an increased awareness of my resistance to letting go? My attachment is preventing or controlling teacher's laughter of me and worrying about how I am perceived. In addition, how could I facilitate this process of letting go? By simply maintaining continuous mindful awareness and not succumbing to any urges? Also, could it be that there is some learning curve, if you will, in how I will have to go through the process of learning how much suffering my attachment is causing me, and eventually I will relinquish the attachment? Yeah, I mean, it's not... See, meditation Meditation is just a word. You sitting still can drive you crazy. You know, if you sit down and close your eyes, you can go crazy. It can happen. So I can't guarantee that just because you close your eyes and say hey I'm practicing Vipassana that you're going to become enlightened but if you're practicing according to the teachings that I've tried to make clearly I'm not saying that I succeeded but the, the teachings that I tried to make clearly available in my booklet um, there's no way it could worsen your suffering due to an attachment I mean in the beginning you might suffer more because you're no longer chasing your attachment you're no longer indulging in it, and so that's stressful in the beginning. Withdrawal is stressful, but but that's 
you know, part of the process of freeing yourself from suffering is is the withdrawal. So that's possible. So it, it's certainly not going to make your your attachment uh, worse. But but the way you phrase it actually might be okay because you say worsen your suffering, and it certainly can do that because withdrawal is like that. When you stop following your habits, then you have to be tortured by them. And you have to be patient with them. But you know, patience can actually be quite liberating. It doesn't have to be awful. It's all in how you look at it. Are you clinging to it? Stop clinging to it. Just to experience it. When, well, are you? <coughs> if you are clinging to it, you know, experience the clinging objectively. But it sounds like you have some sense of what's important. I mean, I can't stress enough that doing an actual meditation course is far better than just practicing on your own. And um, actually, doing an intensive course is the best way to get started. So, otherwise, it's most of your time is not spent doing meditation. So it's not easy to progress. Sounds like there is a teacher in the teacher laughing at at the student that was and wanting to control that was, was part of Yeah, I mean these this person sounds like they're practicing all sorts of different meditations. I don't I would rather that we be clear that you're practicing according to the method that I teach. I'm not going to answer, I don't want to answer any more of these questions because there's been quite a few of them. And I, I, This site is supposed to be, you know, if you've actually committed to giving this sneak a chance, um, which I'm not clear that you are or have. So uh, if you want my advice, get started on this meditation. Read my booklet, get started on this meditation. Give up your other types of meditation and, and uh, then we'll talk. Because your number of questions should probably go down at that point, I think. <coughs> the Buddha says to meditate and see for yourself, to not take his word for it, practice to reach stream entry and see for myself. What can help to keep spending large parts of my life meditating when I can but rather more and more difficulty and suffering. If you don't see, if you've been practicing and don't see any benefits, I would suggest you quit. You have to be honest with yourself. Don't practice it anymore. I don't, this shouldn't take decades to see benefits. You should see benefits. I mean, I started intensively. I did a month of intensive meditation, so I can't speak from experience in terms of starting off um, gradually. But it um, doesn't seem reasonable to suggest that it would take decades to gain any, e even even doing just an hour or two a day. So I would um, take a hard, long, hard, you know, uh, look at at what's really going on, and if you don't find it beneficial, then you go do something else. Cause it shouldn't take that long. I mean, it can be that sometimes we're we're consumed by doubt, such that we ignore or we we forget or we 
are unable to hold on to the benefits and keep them in mind. So that w but that's just being plagued by doubt. And of course, one of the aspects of meditation is to meditate on doubt. So you might want to consider that. I mean, I can't believe that this wouldn't give benefit to someone who is practicing. So I'd say it's more often, personally, I'd say it's more often the other that one is just consumed with doubt. So recommend that but certainly don't don't keep doing something if you know, month after month it's not giving you any benefits change what you're doing Bhante, can we take scientists doing experiments on lab mice, cutting up frogs as cases of lack of karuna as com as opposed to lack of metta? All right, because I've they do not dislike or hate those animals. Too, too technical. I think we have to put our foot down on too technical questions. I've been allowing them, but this is too much. I don't want, I don't, I'm not that kind of scholar. I mean, I'd probably get them wrong sometimes if you ask me all these questions. And, I don't find them all that useful. What I was trying to say in my talk tonight is it doesn't really matter what you technically call it. It's all part of the same thing. So forget that question. Sorry, did I interrupt you, Roman? I'm no, no, but my screen froze up while you were talking, so I'm just letting it refresh now. Sorry. I am new to both this site and the Triple Gem, which I have taken refuge in, and though I have found profound peace, happiness, and truth at this co-workers are not a part of the Sangha, and the nearest temple is a distance my current transportation means are not sufficient to take me to, are not sufficient to take me to the nearest Buddhist temple. I have much desire to join this and have created a small shrine and a place to practice and still have been using this space for a few months now. Yet I find that I'm having a desire to talk to someone who is a part of the Sangha, or is this a healthy desire, or is this another desire I should detach myself from? I've heard of monks whom, are, whom have lived for decades in isolation and seclusion from all persons, including the Sangha. Thank you for your time. I don't really understand the question. I, I'm going to simplify it for you. I mean, I would read my booklet first of all, so you understand where I'm coming from. But if you want something, you should say wanting, wanting. It doesn't. You're not trying to judge whether something is wholesome or unwholesome. That'll come to you itself. That's what we're trying to realize. We're trying to realize what is wholesome and unwholesome. So I don't really have to understand what you're saying to, to uh, what you're referring to, to to really answer it. If you have desires or if you have worries about things doubt about things, uncertainty about things, which is all part of this question, I think. Um, you know, I try to see those those experiences for what they are. Once you do, you'll be able to sort it out for yourself. I wouldn't overthink things or worry too much about should I participate, should I go in the forest, etc., etc. Worry about moments, the present moment.
Are there similarities between making art and meditation? Are they interchangeable as practices? This is the problem with the word meditation. Is it? It's just a word. Art is a type of meditation. Why? Because it involves the mind and it involves focusing the mind. It's not the meditation I do. So for the purposes of this website, no. Because when we say meditation, we're talking about specifically the meditation that is practiced in the booklet and, and nothing can substitute that because it is a specific practice. So I'd recommend you re read my booklet and ideally questions on this site should be related to the practice in that booklet. If I'm around people that are angry with me or just angry in general and knowing my tendency is sometimes to get angry myself, would it be remove myself from the situation? It's one one viable strategy, yes. I think sometimes that's the best strategy. Um, it's not the only one. And, and again, there's no hard and fast answer here. It's something that you have to be skillful about, and it'll change from time to time. And in fact, it's going to be a matter of like ducking and weaving, you know. Sometimes you retreat, sometimes you go forward and sometimes when you interact you make a mistake and there's that inclines you to shy away next time and eventually you get it ultimately it's just about being mindful and then it's neither retreating or right but but in the beginning when you're still getting angry you're going to make lots of mistakes and so um, you'll slowly figure out at, at which moment it's appropriate to do what and then you'll stop being so, ang so angry but uh, it's messy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, the, the rule, the guidebook isn't that detailed, I guess. The roadmap is not now turn right. It's you're here and you want to get there, figure it out kind of thing. A little bit more anyway. And here's some tips to get you started. Would the full Tipitaka volume set be useful for the monastery center? Like our center? If you're referring to our center, we already have pretty much everything we should have. We've got English. What we don't have, I guess, is a Pali version, but it's not that useful. It's nice to have a show, right? The monastery, that was at the Chinese monastery in, in on Bathurst Street, and he's got... And that's the Tipitikas he's got. He's got Theravada Tipitikas, he's got Mahayana Tripitikas uh, of all sorts. Really interesting. He doesn't read them, well, he doesn't read all of them, but he's got them. But he's got a big place, a multi million, well, big, big, expensive, nice place. Well, all of our books right now are in boxes because we don't even have bookshelves. You know what would be useful? The monastery, our monastery. Some nice bookshelves like solid bookshelves that we can put books on and we're done yeah, there was somebody that was hmm? yeah kind of handy with um you know with shelving if they you know if there was somebody that was handy with shelving to walls of shelves because there's a lot of books right uh, we can't connect them to the walls here though because oh here's interesting true 
I r maybe my internet has a problem because hmm, looks like my internet has a problem. YouTube says my output is too low. I don't know how this uh, is going to be. Funny if my internet's not so good. Whatever. Okay, we're done, no? Thank you for your help, Robin. Thank you, everyone, for your questions, for your continued engagement. It's always good to see. Uh, hopefully, we can get right back into it now. All right, so have a good night. Thank you, Bante. Good night.